Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. For copyright and disclaimers, as well as information about how to contact the iCritical Care staff, please listen to the notice at the end of this podcast. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Savell. Today we have an opportunity to speak with Dr. Marin H. Coliffe, MD. He's the anchor author on an article published in the March 2011 edition of Critical Care Medicine, the title of which is Implementation of a Real-Time Computerized Sepsis Alert in Non-Intensive Care Unit Patients. Dr. Coliff is a professor of medicine at the Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, and he's also director of both the Medical Intensive Care Unit and Respiratory Care Services at Barnes Jewish Hospital, also in St. Louis. The citation is Critical Care Medicine, 2011, Volume 39, Number 3. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Koloff. Well, thank you. I thought I'd begin uh, by giving you a few minutes to talk a little bit about the background of this study, how the study was organized, and again, just for the listeners, the, the two major areas that I thought were so particularly fascinating about this study was that you were using this automated sepsis sniffer. I know there's been other work by Dr. Gadgick and others looking at sort of an ARDS uh, electronic sniffer. And the other part that I really liked about this article was looking at patients who were not critically ill. They were on a general medicine ward or they were not in the intensive care unit. And you were looking at general medicine ward patients to see if you could perhaps pick up severe sepsis syndrome or uh, sepsis uh, early, perhaps to intervene early and to improve outcomes, if you'd like to take it from there. Sure. Um, yeah, one of the things that we noticed, uh, and, and I think this is true and one can find similar information in the literature, uh, was that about 40% of the patients who develop sepsis, uh, including severe sepsis and or septic shock in our institution, uh, do so outside of an ICU or the emergency department. So I, in the emergency department, it's pretty straightforward. I mean, patients are coming in, the diagnosis uh, is being made there. In the ICUs, patients are highly monitored in terms of their vital signs and laboratories. So if they go on and develop uh, severe sepsis, it's usually picked up, uh, hopefully, at an early point. But on the hospital wards where there's significantly less monitoring, you know, we thought that there might be an issue. And, and, and the way this came up was that uh, we had implemented, first in the emergency department and then hospital-wide, a sepsis order set. And we actually published uh, on this order set in critical care medicine in two separate publications, uh, both before-after studies, one in the ED at Barnes-Jewish Hospital and the second one hospital-wide. And what we found was that when we put this order set into place, uh, and, and again, it's a computerized order set, that the initiation and use of appropriate antibiotic therapy, the amount of fluids that were given to patients uh, were both significantly greater. And in both experiences, the mortality of severe sepsis and septic shock seemed to be lower in patients who were managed with this order set. Now, when we looked at that closer, we found that most of the signal in terms of the improvement in outcome occurred in patients that were being managed through the emergency room and in the intensive care units. The amount of benefit, if you will, or the magnitude of the difference in terms of uh, outcome was far less on hospital wards. And that led us to thinking that, you know, maybe patients on hospital wards, there's a delay that's occurring in recognizing that severe sepsis and septic shock are occurring, and for that reason, therapies are going to be delayed as well. 
So with that as a hypothesis, we, we set out to see if there was a way in which we could try to identify those patients. And we worked with one of our statisticians here, William Shannon, and uh, looking at uh, a number of years of data uh, here at Barnes Jewish Hospital, which we described in a separate manuscript, which is referenced in the one that we're discussing today, we actually came up with a model using recursive partitioning analysis. And we actually show the model in the paper. And basically what we're doing is we, we selected available vital signs, laboratories that we have available real-time on our information system. Uh, and this information system uh, is basically one that's hospital-wide. The data is inputted uh, at the bedside by the nurses who are putting in vital signs, demographic data. Uh, we have automatic connections uh, with the laboratory uh, information system, the microbiology information systems. And so real-time, we're essentially looking at this data as it's entering this electronic database. So one of the questions I had, just to, to pick up on that, because you're, yep. you're hitting, and I actually read the, the paper you referenced also, but just for the listeners, one of the things that was confusing for me that maybe if you could elaborate and uh, is right. that if, if just to, for simplicity, like for a critical care fellow or whatever, that... You know, right. sepsis is infection plus two or more SERS criteria, you know, temperature, heart rate, respiratory rate, and white count. But your model isn't identical to that. And I was just wondering, I would imagine you would say that the model came out because this was the model that fit the data the best for the patients who ended up developing sepsis, or if you wanted to take a few minutes to talk about sort of uh, sure. how that came about. Sure. The, the model was really defined to predict patients who develop severe sepsis or septic shock on a hospital floor who either died or required ICU admission. So those are very hard endpoints, death or ICU transfer from a floor. And so we could identify them very accurately. And so the model allowed us to identify those individuals. And what we found was that using the recursive partitioning model that we had, the triggering of the model would have occurred an average of about 800 minutes before the actual event occurred, for example, transfer to an ICU and such. So, you know, we're talking about identifying an event uh, on, on the magnitude of five to six hours potentially before it happens. And recursive partitioning is a very simple method whereby you're looking at variables. Uh, one example would be the mean arterial pressure and patients either fall into a bin. If, if they have the outcome and they have that variable, they're in that bin. If not, and they're not in that bin. So, so it's, a, it's a pretty simple method. And, and again, just to keep it simple, the, w the reason it wouldn't work just to say to use your clinical information system to pick up patients who had elevated temperature or, or heart rate or respiratory rate and white count plus some evidence of a, of a positive culture, uh, is that because it would be too nonspecific? You would just lots yeah, of patients? Yeah, those, those turn out to be very nonspecific. And in fact, we included all of those criteria in the model that we tried to come up with. And, and, and the important variables that seemed to differentiate the patients, for example, included the shock index, mean arterial pressure, white blood cell count. Uh, and then we had other variables as well, such as uh, elevated bilirubin, INR, the number of neutrophils, hemoglobin, sodium. If, if you looked at those, uh, you know, it's not intuitive that those variables would necessarily be predictive of that kind of an event. 
unless you looked at them in a little more detail and said, well, you know, maybe patients with elevated bilirubin or individuals uh, who have either hypoperfusion, liver disease, they might be at higher risk. But this was the model that we had. And, and I need to emphasize that this model was institution-specific, meaning it applied to our institution. You know, we validated it over a period of several years' worth of data, but it may not apply at another institution. And again, just because I think it's it's interesting is that when I'm standing at the bedside and trying to teach what the sort of international agreed-upon definition of this syndrome is, uh, are you tr- sort of trying to promulgate that you think it, it should be redefined, or you're saying that this is... No, no, is... no, no. I'm, okay. I'm not saying it should be redefined. Keep in mind that this model was using variables to try to identify patients, uh, as I said, on average of 800 minutes before they actually met the definition, if you will, for being recognized as having severe sepsis or septic shock. So, I mean, you would expect that the criteria for identifying those patients at an earlier point in time are going to be different than the actual criteria that define the syndrome. Right. You're, you're, as you pointed out and, and mentioned multiple times in both the paper and the editorial, this concept of track and trigger, you're looking at changes in clinical status over time, and as you right. point out, trying to predict changes in clinical status over time, right? That's right. I mean, when you look at the criteria that the surviving sepsis guideline and others use for defining severe sepsis or septic shock, they're static criteria for one point in time. I mean, you can apply them over time, but it's not intuitive that you could take those criteria and say, well, if a patient met two of these uh, several hours earlier, then they're very likely to go on to develop severe sepsis or septic shock. And then uh, just a couple points I wanted to make for the listeners, and then we'll, we'll move on. Is So the shock index is the heart rate divided by the systolic blood pressure. Obviously, if your heart rate is up and your systolic blood pressure is low, so as the shock index goes up, you are going into worsening shock. And then one of the other questions I had about in terms of your study was you chose to make it two to one in favor of the non-intervention group. And in, in looking at other studies, I know sometimes they'll choose to put it two to one in favor of the intervention group to get more patients that get the intervention. How did you determine to do it this way? Yeah, we, we did it that way because we felt pretty confident that, uh, you know, we were going to identify patients using this model based on how we applied it earlier. We wanted we weren't so concerned about the sensitivity. We were more worried about its specificity. So we really, and and in reality, I think, you know, when you're dealing with patients uh, who develop uh, uh, or might be at risk for sepsis or far more that uh, don't develop sepsis. And so we just wanted to be sure we had enough patients in there to to look at that. And, And also keep in mind, this is a pilot project. So, you know, we were doing this just to see if this model had any clinical utility whatsoever so that if it did, then we might be able to refine it and move forward with it on a larger scale. Right. So, and again, just emphasizing for the listeners, um, 181 patients in the non-intervention group, about 90 patients, 89 in the intervention group. Uh, These are not patients in an intensive care unit. And what you're looking for, like you said, is uh, changing clinical status that you believe you're looking for sepsis or changes that would require transfer to an intensive care unit. Or that, make, make sure that's I got right. It right. I mean, the, the way we did this was, you know, the identification or early warning part of this was just one component. And so we had the model. It was run real time. So we had these hospital wards that were divided into essentially, uh, you know, being control wards or being interventional wards. And then we ran the uh, early warning electronic alert. And the way the alert worked was that on the floors... And these were medical floors. 
where uh, they were part of the intervention. We had a, a beeper that would go off at any point in time when the alert was triggered real time. And so this is running continuously, 24-7. And then if a patient met the criteria of the model, it sent an email to the one of the investigators, and it also triggered the beeper on the floor with the charge nurse, and it gave them a message. It said, patient in room X has triggered the sepsis alert. So that individual would then have to go in and eyeball that patient and make a determination as to whether or not they needed any interventions. And the interventions were, you know, basic sorts of things, oxygen, uh, giving them fluids, uh, you know, calling the on-call physician or the rapid response team, the use of antibiotics, diagnostic tests like cultures. And, and so that's how we set this up primarily to see if we could induce any kind of change in practice simply by having the alert in place. And in fact, we we're able to show that we did. The ward patients uh, had significantly more interventions that were applied uh, within 12 hours after the alert compared to the patients who had the alert, but it was kept silent, meaning that the clinicians, the nurses, the doctors on the wards, on the control wards, never had that information. So on the intervention floors, there were more interventions, including antibiotics, use of fluids, oxygen, as well as diagnostic studies, primarily blood cultures. And uh, a couple of questions I had when you were designing the study, and, and I was just curious how you decided. How did you decide to not have it also fire off a message to, like, the intern on call or something? That must have been a tough decision, or how did you decide well, that? Well, I mean, we, we, we could have done that, but we, we decided for this pilot project, and we're now in the process of actually doing this on a larger scale and a larger trial, but for this pilot project, we thought, well, you know, there has to be an individual who's going to at least screen the patient because we know that these electronic alerts are not, you know, completely accurate. And in fact, the way we decided to do this was that a nurse would be the first contact individual who would go in, look at the patient after getting the alert, and determine whether or not there was something real going on. Now, you could make the argument, well, maybe it should have been an intern or a physician, you know, we decided on, that on the hospital floors and, and the nurses, there was a lot of buy-in from the nursing staff with this, that, you know, they actually wanted to be the individuals who were contacted so they could make those initial assessments. And that's how we went with it. No, no, I think it was great. I had no issue with it. I was just deciding uh, to, again. Yeah, no, I mean, it was something we really talked about. And I think, you know, I, I think in the future, as these sorts of methods evolve and, and hopefully get better, it could potentially be uh, an intern, a hospitalist, uh, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be a nurse. Yeah. And the the other question I had is, there must already be a rapid response team there. And how did you decide? Did you look at uh, would that trigger a rapid response call, or uh, how often the nurses called a rapid response, or, or how did that? Because it's it's dovetailing into that very tightly, as you mentioned in your own discussion. Yeah, we did not look at that specifically. It was really left up to the nurse making the first assessment of the individual, whether or not the on-call physician during the day or the rapid response individuals would be called to evaluate the patient. So so that was really left up to the individual making the uh, initial patient assessment. Um, but as you said in some of your future studies, obviously, and I would imagine this would work well with the rapid response team for something like this, right? Oh, no, definitely it would. I mean, now I, you know, I have to emphasize that this is preliminary, and I think that everyone has to recognize this is institution-specific. But the point is, as hospitals and institutions are you know, purchasing and developing these electronic informatic systems, 
uh, for the most part, they're used passively in terms of just uh, data entry notes. Uh, I, I think that you know the potential for the future is that they can be used in an active way, you know, essentially to aid clinicians, uh, in, uh, especially in areas of the hospital that, that are non-monitored very well. And, and the hospital wards are, are certainly a place, uh, particularly after normal business hours, where that's required. So you already spoke about uh, a lot of the outcomes uh, in terms of increased interventions uh, less than 12 hours after the alert, increased likelihood of antibiotic escalation, fluids, oxygen, um, but no difference in mortality. And as you emphasized multiple times, this was a, a pilot study. But one of the questions that I had for you reading through this that I just wanted you to help address for me is, you keep mentioning about this 20% positive predictive value of your model. And so I would imagine somebody like you would try to either fine-tune your model or look back at the data to see you know, what could have been done better to make our model more likely to be helpful. Uh, right. But I was wondering if you could talk about that for a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I, I think when you look at all attempts that have been made so far to use uh, electronic uh, or, or informatic systems to, to predict events or to, or to act as an early warning system, one of the problems, uh, you know, is the fact that you miss many patients. And, and so, you know, we were able to identify about 20% of the patients uh, with this particular model. Now, we have been in the process of refining the model, and that's obviously something that, you know, individuals are going to have to do. But I, but I think, you know, for the future and, and the way we're looking at this and progressing is that a model like this may only be one component. And so, you know, what we're thinking about doing is actually taking a model like this and, and combining it with additional systems to try to increase the overall accuracy, particularly the sensitivity of identifying these patients at an earlier point in time, while also maintaining the specificity so that false alerts are not created at a higher level. Because the problem with creating too many false alerts is fatigue, just like right. in the ICU, right, right. except that it's going to occur on a floor, and eventually you know, you're going to get neglect of the alarm or the alert. And I think that uh, and one of the things that we're looking at now is, is using wireless uh, monitoring systems on some of our wards where we get additional data that are not available uh, through the informatics system and trying to link that with the early warning system to come up with a more sensitive approach. Because, you know, as someone practicing critical care, it, it makes intuitive sense that you could use a computer to put together a cloud of data to say, aha, this patient's meeting it. Just again for the listeners, if you say the positive predictive value for the patient being transferred to the ICU, meaning that 80% of the time, if this was firing off, the patient wouldn't be transferred, but it were you picking up patients when you looked at the, the the patients that it was saying met criteria for being an alert? Most of the time, did you concur that they overall met criteria for, for sepsis at least? Or, or do you want to talk about that? Right. Even if they didn't and, get I mean, transferred. I, I, yeah. I think we have to be careful here because the alert does not define sepsis. Okay. And so we, we have to differentiate those two. So So the alert is identifying potentially a pool of patients who may go on to develop sepsis. And, and so I think that's a key issue here. And, and the fact that, uh, you know, we had a positive predictive value of 20% means that, um, you know, we were picking up 20% of the individuals who did develop severe sepsis or septic shock and subsequently required transfer to an ICU. So we were not picking up the additional 80% or so where that occurred. 
and recognizing that, we, we still thought that, uh, again, that 20% was better than 0%. And that's why we're in the process now of further trying to refine this. I, I think the reality is that when you look at early, well, let's just take the example of the rapid response team. In most institutions, and you know, there, there are data including at least one large randomized controlled trial to support this statement, for most uh, institutions, rapid response teams are called fairly late uh, in the disease process when the patient's obviously deteriorating or is near arrest or may have already arrested. The key is to try to get the early response team in there at a point where they can make a difference to prevent the progression of the disease, whether it's sepsis, uh, you know, whatever the condition might be. And, you know, we recognize that 20% uh, is only one-fifth, but on the other hand, I think that, you know, we can refine that and, uh, you know, I don't know, you know, we might be able to get that number up to 40%, 50%, and, and at that point, you know, you really start dealing with some real strong uh, interventions and numbers. I mean, if we could prevent 50% of the ward patients from deteriorating and ending up in an ICU, I mean, that, that, that would be a significant, uh, a significant right. outcome. Right. And, and so the message, I'm trying to sort of bottle it down, and, and the message is these are patients that should be looked at. They may Absolutely. not all need to go to the ICU, but they're That's at right. high risk for going there. And the idea is to fine-tune the model to take it more and more seriously that this patient is firing off a risk alarm without, as you said, balancing it constantly with the fatigue of too many alarms. And it's a very tricky balance, right? Oh, it is. And, and in fact, some hospitals uh, have similar kinds of systems where they're written protocols, where they have a certain set of written criteria that if a patient is meeting these criteria then the duty nurse uh, on the floor will call, you know, the on-call physician to come by and evaluate the patient if he or she feels that's necessary. You know, similar kinds of approaches have been used with some of the EICUs, but that's in the ICU system uh, in terms of trying to predict, uh, you know, what's going to happen to an individual. But, you know, I, I think that overall uh, we're moving more and more towards this uh, this point at which we're going to be able to use all of our electronic information as long as we can fine-tune it, not only for a data repository, but to actually try to improve the care of the patients. And uh, I guess my concluding thoughts would be as if, uh, you know, the supercomputer Watson was able to uh, win on Jeopardy, maybe they could give you some, your group some time with Watson to try and figure out the, an optimal model for this uh, rather than just interviewing patients, because it seems like it is, a, it is a solvable problem, that the data is there. As you said, more and more of this data is being put into computers, and, and clearly we should be able to, to solve this problem. Oh, I'm, I'm convinced this is a solvable problem, and I'm convinced that, that this can significantly improve the care of patients outside of ICUs. I mean, you know, we, we have to keep in mind most patients are not in an ICU in the hospital. And in fact, when you, when you start talking about 30 to 40% of all sepsis occurring on hospital floors, and that doesn't even take into account other events like myocardial ischemia, you know, other conditions that could potentially be identifiable at an earlier point in time, something like this could have much broader implications, not just in sepsis. And and it sounds like, I was going to just backtrack one thing and then we'll conclude. It sounds like you could take the argument that you could work and work and work on your model until it was 100% predictive and then start doing studies looking at whether or not firing off the alerts helps. But on the other hand, you could be waiting a very long time then, and that's why I would imagine you took the approach you did, right? That's but right. And, and in fact, you know, as I said, we're now on a second much larger trial, doing it in a more rigorous manner to 
see, you know, if we can actually impact other outcomes, such as, you know, the actual need to transfer patients to an ICU in order to, if you will, uh, try to uh, avoid those ICU transfers. So, so that that's really where, you know, you, you, you would really start to gain some utility from employing models and electronic systems like this. We've been speaking today with Dr. Marin Koliff. He's a professor at Washington University in St. Louis, and he's the director of the Medical Intensive Care Unit and Respiratory Care Services at Barnes-Jewish Hospital. We've been speaking with him about his article recently published in Critical Care Medicine entitled Implementation of a Real-Time Computerized Sepsis Alert in Non-Intensive Care Unit Patients. Thank you so much, Dr. Koloff. Well, thank you. This concludes another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information, as well as over five years of archived podcasts. For the iCriticalCare podcast, I'm Dr. Richard Savell. The Paragon Critical Care Quality Implementation Program utilizes a combination of self-assessments, teleconferences, site visits, peer collaboration, consulting, and coaching to help hospitals develop high-functioning critical care teams. To transform your critical care units through participation in the Paragon program, ask to speak with the Paragon Critical Care Program Manager. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Richard Savell, MD, FCCM. Dr. Savell is the Medical Co-Director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Montefiore Medical Center in New York City practicing under the leadership of Vladimir Kavetin, MDFCCM. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.